Haggai chapter 2, verses 20 to 23, hear the word of the Lord. The word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai on the 24th day of the month. Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I am about to shake the heavens and the earth and to overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I am about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the nations and overthrow the chariots and their riders. And the horses and their riders shall go down, every one by the sword of his brother. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. Let's pray. Now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. One of the strangest and most unnerving experiences we had as we were living for those decades in Mexico was to live through earthquakes. Now, we were never, thankfully, in the epicenter of these earthquakes, but even hundreds of miles from these earthquakes, we could still feel the tremors, and they would shake the buildings, and they would sometimes damage buildings even hundreds of miles away. And there were a a few occasions when we had to rush out of the building in which we were to get out to the street. And I remember one time we rushed out of the church building, and I got everybody out of the church building. It wasn't on a Lord's Day, so there weren't many people there. And we stood out in the parking lot, and it was the strangest experience to feel the waves go through the earth under my feet. And what it did for me was to to call into question this idea that I have that the earth is solid and unmovable and unshakable. When I felt, as the song says, the earth move under my feet, I, I realized that it could be moved, it could be shaken as well. And that's, that's a theme that we find through Haggai. This is the second time he brings this up. Two months ago, he preached uh, a sermon about God about uh, was about to shake the earth and the heavens and the dry land and the sea. And once again, he talks about shaking and that God promised that he would shake everything. So now we get to this second time when he picks this theme up. So um, the second message on the same day as last week. Look at verse 20. It says, The word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai on the 24th day of the month. And so this is the second time. He gets to preach twice on this day. And you remember last week that we think this day was a special ceremony day. It was a day of of laying the foundation, sort of like a ribbon-cutting day for the the re-inauguration of the work. For those of you who haven't been in this series, very quickly, where are we in history? The people of God throughout the time of the kingdoms of Judah in the north, Israel, I'm sorry, Judah in the south, Israel in the north, they'd rebelled against the Lord. God had sent the ten tribes of the north into exile, never to be brought back again. He sent the two tribes from the south into exile in Babylon. Babylon was then conquered by Persia, and under Persia, They were able to go back to the land to rebuild Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. But we saw at the beginning of the book that they were rebuilding all right, but they were rebuilding their own homes. 
And so Haggai first came along and said, Consider your ways. Take to heart your priorities. And he stirred them up. He and Zechariah, who was preaching on the other street corner, they stirred the people up to rebuild the temple. And so they they responded and they began to rebuild the temple. And we saw that God said, I will be with you. And I will make this temple even more glorious in the future. And I will bless you. So this is a real turning point in their lives. And so now he's concluding here with this second sermon. And he is concluding the way he began. If you go back to Haggai chapter 1.1, it says, In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet to... Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah. Now we go to the last sermon, and it says, verse 20, chapter 2, the word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai on the 24th day of the month. Speak to whom? Zerubbabel, governor of Judah. Now remember who Zerubbabel was. He was a descendant of David. If things had been going as they should have, he would have been sitting on the throne of David. He was the heir to the throne of Israel, but he is now only a a, a governor without much authority uh, appointed by a pagan king, Darius. So, what was God's message to Zerubbabel? This final one is focused on Zerubbabel. And what he does is he continues his message about shaking about shaking. Speak to Zerubbabel, verse 21, governor of Judah, saying, I am about to shake. I'm about to shake the heavens and the earth and to overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I am about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the nations and overthrow the chariots and their riders. And the horses and their riders shall go down, every one by the sword of his brother. So he picks up the shaking sermon. Now in the first shaking, if you go back to Uh, This same chapter, verses 6 and 7, he said he would shake the heavens and the earth, and what he would do is basically shake them down. And he would shake them down, and their silver and their gold, their precious things would flow into the temple, and the latter days of that temple that they were rebuilding would be more glorious than the former days. And he was going to do that by plundering the nations, which is how God always builds his dwelling place, by plundering the nations. This is what we've seen up to this point in Haggai. But he says this shaking is going to have another effect as well. In addition to shaking down the nations so that their riches pour into the temple, he is also going to uproot kingdoms, overthrow kingdoms. Uh, Verse 22, he says, to overthrow the throne of kingdoms, destroy the strength of kingdoms of nations, overthrow the chariots and their riders. And what we have here, what we have here is a fascinating kind of review of some of God's tactics in holy war. In holy war. And a very attentive Jew, a very attentive reader of the Old Testament will say, wait, I've heard something like this before. And there are three images of holy war here. And holy war is when, when God takes charge and He brings about the victory by often miraculous means. The first one is this verb, to overthrow. He uses it twice here. To overthrow the throne of kingdoms. To overthrow chariots and their riders. This is the same verb that's used, among other places, when Sodom and Gomorrah are overthrown, where God intervenes with those wicked cities and He overthrows them. The second image, horses and riders and chariots. Have we heard about horses and riders and chariots before? 
And it uses the verb to go down. And it's the same words, the same words that are used in that song in Exodus chapter 15 after the people had come out of Egypt and they were celebrating the victory over the Egyptians. And the song of Miriam was what? The horses and riders are thrown into the sea. And it says that the horses and their chariots and their riders went down into the sea. So there's another image here. And the third image here is about their enemies destroying themselves by turning their swords on each other. And so they do the job for the for God and for His people. They, they kill each other. And you can think back a number of times in the Old Testament where that happens. Perhaps most strikingly and memorably is when God's people were going against the Midianites under Gideon. And God says, you have too many people. And He whittles them down to only 300 persons. And they don't even have to fight. They just make a lot of noise and a lot of light, a sound and light. And what do the Midianites do? They take out their swords and they turn them on each other. And this is another tactic of holy war here. So that's what we have going on here. God says, I'm going to shake the nations and I'm going to engage in warfare against the nations and overthrow these kingdoms. Now, this message about the kingdoms is parallel to the message we heard about the temple. And it's this, in the context of Haggai, it's this. If you, if you God's people... If you get your priorities straight, if you keep things in proper perspective by putting my kingdom, God says, if you put my kingdom first, if I am at the center of your lives, and that's what the temple represented, then God will take your little efforts and He will bring about amazing results. Amazing results. And that's, that's basically a summary of the, the, the message of Haggai. And we already saw this in the case of the temple. We have, we have traced how the temple developed. Uh, the temple in the early days was a tabernacle, then it was the temple of Solomon, then it was this second temple, then it was the temple of Herod, and then that was destroyed. And Jesus said, my body's the temple, destroy this temple and I will rebuild it in three days. So he is the dwelling place of God among us. And then we saw how the church is the temple of the Holy Spirit and God lives in the church and we saw that one day the new heavens and the new earth will be the temple and there won't be any isolated temple there because the whole of creation will be the temple of God. And we've seen that. But the principle here works with the temple. And that is, how do we build the temple now? We've seen that we build the temple now by building up the church, by evangelizing, by discipling. And how does that work? Paul said this. Paul said... In 1 Corinthians 3.6, I sowed, Apollos, another evangelist, watered, but what? God gave the increase. God gave the increase. How did the church grow in those early years? Paul planted. He planted the seed. Apollos watered the seed, but really, how did it grow? What made it grow? It was because God gave the increase. So that's the dynamic of the growth of the church. We need to do the work that God's called us to do, of making disciples. And how will it grow? How will our our church grow? How will the church grow in our community around the world? By us getting our priorities straight, putting our, our resources in line, in line with kingdom values and the priority of the kingdom of God, and and then telling people about Jesus, teaching them the word, 
getting out and, and sharing the gospel with others. That's our work. And God will take these little and often pitiful efforts on our part, and He will make the church grow. That's how it works. But it's parallel here to the idea of the kingdom as well. So there are two images here. There's the temple, which is now the church, and there's also the kingdom. And these are two parallel ideas that go hand in hand. What's the kingdom? It's the reign of God. And so how will His reign grow? How will it be extended? Jesus told a parable, and it went like this. The farmer goes out, it's in Mark chapter 4, 26 to 28. The farmer goes out, and he scatters his seed. And then he goes to bed. And he gets up, and he goes to bed again, and he gets up, and he goes to bed. And then, eventually, he harvests the seed. But what happened in the middle? The parable says that the earth automatically made the seed germinate and grow and blossom and bear fruit. So, the farmer could do certain things, couldn't he? The farmer could sow seed, and the farmer could reap the harvest, but the farmer could not do what was in the middle there. The earth had to do what was in the middle there. So, that's the parable of the kingdom. How will the kingdom grow? Same way. By us sowing the seed, by us reaping the harvest, but the middle part we can't make happen. We cannot make the kingdom grow. We cannot make the church grow. We cannot make the kingdom grow. We can only do the little tasks that God has given us to do with our priorities on those tasks, and God will make them grow. Now, the, the last verse here focuses on this king, this kingly idea, uh, the, the question of Zerubbabel. And here he focuses... Not, he, he doesn't focus on these kingdoms anymore. He says, what I'm going to do with you, Zerubbabel. And he says, on that day, what day? The day when he will shake, on that day, when he will shake the universe, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. God addresses Zerubbabel here with the language of election and kingship. Election and kingship. He says, on that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you. I will take you. And this is the the same thing he said to Israel back in Exodus chapter 6-7. I will take you, Israel to be my people, and I will be your God. This is the language of divine election. So just as he had said to Israel, I will take you to be mine, he's saying to Zerubbabel, I will take you to be mine. And then he uses a fascinating expression that we could jump over very quickly because it sounds pedestrian, but it's actually very significant. And it's this, O Zerubbabel, my servant, my servant. That expression, my servant, is most often applied to David. To David. Now, there are many who are called the servant of the Lord and so on in the Old Testament, but usually when it's my servant, it is David. And so here he's bringing in this this language about King David and the line of David. So, my servant. But there's another place where my servant appears frequently. And it's in Isaiah 40 to 55. And these are called the servant songs. 
And there is this mysterious character whom God calls my servant. And sometimes it looks like the whole nation of Israel. Sometimes it looks like an individual. And it's a very fascinating study. Who is this servant who is called my servant? But this this description, my servant, is applied to David, and it's applied to this servant who would suffer for the sins of God's people. So this this very simple description is actually full of of, uh, of meaning and content here. It's pointing to David, and it's also pointing to that one, that servant, who would come and suffer for God's people. And then he makes the, the idea of election very explicit. The last verse says, or the last line says, For I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. Chosen him for what? And here's where it gets a little tricky, or a little vague. I've chosen you, he says, uh, I will make you like a signet ring. I will make you like a signet ring. Actually, this says, I will make you like the seal. The seal. And the seal was a mark of authenticity. The seal was a mark of authority. If you read the book of Esther, you find that that it plays a very significant role there. The one who has the the king's seal is able to order dictates, uh, edicts in the king's name and with his seal it authenticates it. It gives it divine or rather royal authority. And he's saying here, I will make you the seal, the seal. Now, if you look at uh, different places where this shows up, it could be worn around one's neck. It could be a necklace, the seal. Um, in uh, uh, Genesis chapter 38, verse 8, it shows up as a necklace. It could be worn as a ring, and that's how it's interpreted here. We're going to see Jeremiah 22:24, where it's a ring. Or it could be worn as a bracelet. In the Song of Solomon, in uh, chapter 8, verse 6, it's a bracelet that's a seal. But in each case, it is kept close to the person because it bears the authority. And that's why it is the seal. It's not like the, the king would have more than one. That would be a dangerous thing. It's the, it's the black box. It's the, it's the football. It's the, the one thing. Uh, that, that There's only one of them because there's the authority. There's the power in that seal. Now, this prophecy about the signet ring or the seal is kind of vague. What does it mean that Zerubbabel would be the seal? The seal. It's kind of vague, but we know that it is undoing a curse on David's line. And we know that because it undoes with very similar words a prophecy that we're going to look at in Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 22, verses 24 to 26. Now, This one king, he was the second to last king. Second to last king of Judah. And his name was Kaniah, or sometimes Jeconiah, or sometimes Jehoiachin, to keep things simple, right? Three different different names, none of which are easy for us. Kaniah, Jeconiah, or Jehoiachin. He was the last, the last, uh, second to last king of Judah before the exile, and he was taken into exile himself. 
So, picking this up, uh, Jeremiah 22, 24-26 says, As I live, declares the Lord, though Kaniah, Jeconiah, Jehoiachin, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, were the signet ring on my right hand, yet I would tear you off and give you into the hand of those who seek your life, into the hand of those whom you of whom you are afraid, even into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and into the hand of the Chaldeans. I will hurl you and the mother who bore you into another country where you were not born, and there you shall die. And that's what happened. That's what happened to Kaniah, Jeconiah, Jehoiachin, the same person. That's what happened. So God rejected him. He took away his divine authority, and he said, I will throw you into another country. And so, whatever this signet ring means... And whatever role Zerubbabel would play, we can see that this is a a restoration of the line of David. What does he say? He says, Zerubbabel, I will take you and make you like a signet ring, the seal, for I have chosen you. So we know that there's a a re-inauguration, not only of the temple, but a re-inauguration of the line of David. So we're starting over there. Now what is not clear is exactly the role that Zerubbabel would play as God's seal. Some scholars think that Haggai believed that Zerubbabel was going to be the Messiah. And he may have. He may have believed that. But what he personally believed about Zerubbabel is both opaque to us, we don't know, and it's also beside the point, what he personally believed. Um, In one sense, of course he believed he was the Messiah. Of course he believed that, because that expectation attached to every one of the line of David. It attached to David. He was the Messiah, the Anointed One, and all of his sons were Messiahs in the sense of being Anointed Ones. And so that expectation attached to all of the line of David, and so it's no surprise if that expectation attached to uh, Zerubbabel as well. However, as far as our records go, shortly after this, Zerubbabel just disappears. He just disappears from the scene, and we really don't know what happened to him. Now, because the temple did not initially measure up, if we're having problems with that again, we're just going to ignore it and keep going. So, um, Because the temple did not initially measure up to the prophecies of Haggai, and Zerubbabel did not become king over Israel, there are those that say, Haggai messed up, He was wrong. See, his prophecy was not fulfilled. He got it wrong. However, before we come to such a radical conclusion, a couple things. Prophecies are notoriously hard to date. They're notoriously hard to date, and generally they take longer to fulfill than people expect. So that's just something about prophecy. In addition... In addition, we ought not to be surprised that, here we are towards the end of the Old Testament, we ought not to be surprised that things sort of peter out. Because all of the institutions of the Old Testament 
end up disappointing the expectations that were attached to them. Israel disappointed, Judah disappointed, the temple disappointed, the priesthood disappointed, David disappointed, the line of David disappointed. All of the institutions of the Old Testament kind of grind to a halt in spite of all of these glorious prophecies that are attached to them. So we can conclude one of two things. Either these prophecies are mistaken or we're looking in the wrong place for the fulfillment of these prophecies. And in fact, we find that this disappointment was by design. It wasn't a mistake. It was to keep us looking. And that's what happened with all the sons of David. Well, maybe this is the one. Oh, I guess not. Well, maybe he's the one. No, I guess he wasn't either. Well, maybe his son will be the one. No, he he sure wasn't either. And it kept the people looking. And that's what the whole Old Testament does. It pushes us forward to what was coming. Now, it's no surprise to any of you what is the what is the fulfillment? We've seen this throughout Haggai that the fulfillment of the temple was Jesus. Destroy this temple. Uh, The Word became flesh and made His tabernacle among us. Jesus is the dwelling place of God in humanity, with humanity, as humanity. The church is the dwelling place of God. The new heavens and the new earth, the dwelling place of God. These are the fulfillments of the temple. But what about about the prophecies about Zerubbabel? And here's here's where that difficult to read section of Matthew comes in. The genealogy. With all those difficult names. I read it previously, but let me just pick up. Right in the middle of this genealogy, verse 12, chapter 1 of Matthew, and after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, and Abiud the father of Eliakim, and we keep going, and Eliud the father of Eleazar, Eleazar the father of Mathan, Mathan the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. Why is Zerubbabel so important? He's at the hinge point. He's at the hinge point here when it looks like everything is on the line. When the line of David has been thrown off and thrown into exile and died in exile under the the power of a pagan king, it looks like everything has come to a grinding halt and there is no possible chance of it going anywhere. And who shows up right at that moment? It's Zerubbabel. And the ring is given back to Zerubbabel. The line continues, and it continues on until the final heir, the son of David, who is the heir of all the promises given to David, Jesus Christ the King. Now, um, we don't know exactly in his day what the people thought of Zerubbabel, but now we know. He was the pivot. He was the hinge point. He was that, that last line in this line that looked like it had been broken. He was the restoration. He was the reestablishment of this this connection with the line of David. So Jesus is the fulfillment of the temple, and Jesus is the fulfillment of all the promises to David, which are continued in Zerubbabel. Now, one of the difficulties that people had when Jesus showed up in recognizing that He was who He was was that he didn't look like the king they were expecting. 
He, he didn't look much like a king. They were still a vassal people. They were still under the thumb of a, a foreign nation. It, it was Rome at the time. And he didn't cast off Rome. He, he didn't do what they expected kings to do. And so many of them didn't recognize that, that the king had come, the son of David, was there. But one phrase from this final message to the people, to Zerubbabel through Haggai, that helps us recognize Jesus is this expression that we already looked at, my servant. My servant. This is what brings it together. This is the key that unlocks the mystery. This is, this is what enables us to see Jesus as the king. Why? Because who is the servant? Who is my servant? It's, it's the descendant of David. It's the son of David. It's the conquering king. And it's the suffering servant who would give his life for the sins of the people. Who would be crushed for our iniquities. Who would be broken. Who would be buried. And who would rise again on the third day. My servant, that brings it together. And that enables us to see, well, lo and behold, the, the king is also the suffering servant. In other words, the Old Testament anticipated. And here we see how, how this anticipation is brought to together in, in Zerubbabel. Anticipated that the coming king, the coming reigning king, son of David, would also be the one who was crushed for the sins of his people. Now, we now have the rest of the story. So even though we don't have all the details, perhaps, we can, we can see a lot more clearly from our perspective what God was doing. And we can now believe in Jesus with a clear knowledge of who He is and what He has done. But that doesn't mean that we don't face things like the people of Haggai's time faced. And that's what? Disappointments. Life wasn't measuring up for them as they had expected. And they faced disappointment after disappointment. And the people of God faced disappointment after disappointment. And we saw that that was by design. As we come to the close of of Haggai, we need to understand that it's the same for us. Our lives have many joys, but we also have many, many disappointments. Why, why is that? That's by design as well. Because these, these disappointments keep pointing us to the fact that many of the things on which we rest turn out to be shakable things. And if we trust in something and it, it gives way, and we, we trust in another thing and it, it gives way, and we think something is solid and it begins to shake, that, that's by design, folks. That's, that's to point us forward, that's to point us away from shakable things to a, an unshakable kingdom. To say it another way, these disappointments in life are constant calls like the people of God have received throughout all of their days, constant calls to live not by sight in these shakable things that we see, but to live by faith in the One who has come and who is coming again. Let's pray. Our God, we have a lot more information 
than the people of Haggai's day did. But it's not finished yet for us either. And we, we enter into their, their economic difficulties, their disappointments with their work, their disappointments with, with how things were turning out in their lives. And you call them to look forward to the great things you were going to do, and you do the same for us. So, Lord, I pray as we come to the end of this series on Haggai, as we conclude that you would help us to take to heart our ways, that we would seek first your kingdom and your righteousness, trusting that all the other things will be given to us in your good time, that we would know that you are with us now and that you will be with us till the end, that you are building your temple, that you are building your kingdom, and that we would redouble our focus or our efforts and reorient our priorities to that which is important, to that which is real, to that which is permanent, to that which is unshakable, to that which can never be taken away. And Lord, as we go through life and have disappointment after disappointment, fix our eyes on Jesus, because we are receiving from King Jesus an unshakable kingdom. And we, we pray, O oh God, that You would take our, our puny efforts, and that You would be pleased to grow your church, and to grow your kingdom, that the glory might be all yours and not ours. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.